I'm sorry. Okay, I got it off. All right, I was off. I could tell I was off by a little bit. I got that look like, no, no, no. Let's have a word of prayer. Remember Tracy and her family. Father in heaven, Lord, I pray that you would just encourage our hearts today. God, we want to hear from you. Nothing catches you by surprise. You're always working. So, Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts today, that that as we open up your word, that we would know it's a serious thing to see what you have done and what you are doing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I ask you, if you're afraid of the dark, we're going to see in Scripture today, in Luke chapter 23, if you want to turn there, we're going to be in Luke chapter 23. We are moving towards the greatest event in all of human history. And that is when a dead man came out of a tomb alive. The resurrection of Christ. We'll celebrate that in just two weeks. We'll also land in Luke chapter 24 in two weeks. And we'll see what Luke records about the resurrection of Christ. But before we get to the resurrection of Christ, we have to go through the gory, horrible, but wonderful details of his death. I read about a little boy who was looking through one of these books of religious art. In the church that I grew up, grew up in, there were, there were large stained glass windows of Jesus in different sort of scenery. One, he'd be holding a lamb on his shoulders, and one, he's there praying, those kinds of things. And this boy was looking through this book of, of religious art, and there was a picture of the crucifixion of Christ. Of course, done with artistic flavor and, and you know, done in a, in a magnificent way. But even when you see it portrayed in that way, which isn't really accurate, they're not tanned golden brown with you know, their hair flowing and, and beautiful pictured-like faces. That's not the way it looks. But the little boy said, if God had been there, he'd have never let that happen. It's easy to kind of think that way, isn't it? I'll remind you two weeks ago when Pastor Billy had the flogging device that was used by the Roman soldiers to beat Jesus to the very edge of his death. We've talked about the thieves there on the left and right-hand side of Jesus as he gave up his life. We talked about Simon of Cyrene carrying the crossbeam through the streets of Jerusalem. We talked about the kangaroo court that night six different times. Jesus is brought before these authorities who think they're ruling the day, but in reality, they're showing by their own conflict of themselves that this whole process is unjust and criminal, where Jesus is found guilty of crimes that he never committed. It's easy as you walk through this process to come to the conclusion that this shouldn't happen. That God has somehow slipped from control. And that this event is this awful, awful thing. And it is horrible. But what we're going to see today as we look in God's Word is that God is very, very involved. The Lord is going to take over the process today in Luke chapter 23. Satan and and the men of the day, the leaders of the day, they think they are in charge. And they're having a good old time mocking 
the Lord Jesus. But we're going to see that now God figuratively stands up and takes control. God was very involved, very involved in that day. In what we may say is the worst day of human history, we may say is the best day in human history. Look with me in Luke chapter 23. Let's start reading here at verse number 44 and read on. It was now about the sixth hour, that would be noon. This is about six hours from daylight. Of course, people aren't walking off watches on their arm. And so you would use terms like this that just kind of represented a time of the day. Sixth hour would be the time when the sun is right above you, about noon. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So for three hours. While the sun's light failed. What a great, great phrase. Even the sun in its light failed. There's a lot of failure going on during this time. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Notice, we don't, it doesn't say who tore the temple. It's a passive verb. It was torn in two. The temple was, the temple curtain. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, at the end of His life, He called out with a loud voice now, Father, into Your hands I commit My Spirit. And having said this, He breathed His last. Now when the centurion, which meant He was over a hundred men, that's that centa, okay? He oversaw a hundred soldiers. When the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God. He said, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds had assembled for this spectacle, and that's exactly what it was, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. That's an expression that means that they were filled with grief, with sorrow, with confusion. That same phrase is used for the man who came and in repentance bowed before the Lord and said, Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner, and beat his breast. And all his acquaintances, whose acquaintances? Jesus. This would be his disciples. This would be his mother Mary. Other women, godly women, who stayed faithful to Jesus to the end and are there at the cross. Peter is hiding. James, hiding. All the disciples, except for John, he's there, they're hiding. But the acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. And that was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and a righteous man. What's the council? This is the group of people who declared that Jesus had to die. Now, in reality, if one man said no, was supposed to stop the whole process when it came to a capital offense. But either Joseph was not allowed to speak, or I think very likely he was not invited to the affair. We don't know that he was there, we just know he was a member of the council. He was a righteous man. He had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. This man is a man of means, he's a man of influence. 
So Pilate did just what he asked. They took it down, wrapped it in a linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb cut in stone. This would be far different than the average burial place of a man crucified. The two thieves crucified on the left and right of Jesus, very likely they'd be ripped from the cross and thrown into a mass grave, a pile of trash, is what would happen to them. This tomb, though, no one had ever been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. This is along with the tradition and the custom of their day. They're preparing, they're going to prepare his body for burial. And on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandments. We end here in chapter 23 and we are waiting for The resurrection. Do you feel it? Jesus is now in the ground and we're waiting for the resurrection. Now let's talk a little bit about the crucifixion. Let's talk about this a little bit. We need to understand something. And that's this. To the religious leaders, to the Jewish people, to the religious people, to the people of the book to the people who had been reading of the coming Messiah for literally 1,500 years now, been looking for the Messiah, the idea of a crucified Messiah was just beyond their recognition. But we need to know that God's plan always included a cross. It always included a cross. There was never a time since the fall of man that God didn't know this day was coming. This thing did not catch God by surprise. Jesus' death on the cross is not an example of good men doing bad things. It's not an example of a good man being treated poorly. That's not what this is. All of those things may be true. That's not what this is really about. This is about the plan of God being worked out. If not for the cross, you and I would be helpless. But the cross was seen as a horrible thing to the Jews of that day. They should have seen it. I want to put some verses up on the screen for you here and read some of them. I just want you to see how the plan of God had always included a cross. You go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. This is when man had rebelled against God. And God now brought consequences into the life of men. And God now speaking about those consequences, He not only cursed man, He not only cursed the world, man, women, and Satan. And the one who rose up against God. And listen to the word of God to that one who rebelled against God. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is like day 27 or something in all of history. And we already see, I don't know this day 27. My point is it was early, okay? We already see that God's plan includes this effort by sinful man to take down God. And it bruises heel. But Jesus would crush his head. Crush his head. You seen the movie The Passion? It's a horrible movie, quite honestly. 
I think probably every believer should see it once. It really is. It's hard to watch. It's hard to watch. I think my favorite scene in the movie, though, is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is there praying. The actor is doing a great job of depicting the the mental anguish that Jesus is under. He's praying and he's pouring out his heart and his disciples aren't standing with him. I'll never forget this scene. Do you remember it? When Jesus stands up from praying and this snake is on the ground. And it slithers by him and Jesus lifts his carpenter's foot and goes, boom, and kills that snake. And I'm like, yes, Genesis 3.15. There it is. Thousands of years ago, the plan of God included a cross. Not just there. David, in Psalm chapter 22, this is 1,000 B.C. This is literally hundreds of years before crucifixion had even been invented. And listen to the words of David in Psalm 22, which, by the way, Jesus will quote from the cross. From the cross, Jesus quotes Psalm 22. Not the whole psalm, but, but, but a part of it. Listen to it. I am poured out like water. David now writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaking of the coming Messiah, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of the earth, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircled me. They've pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Horrible truth. Isaiah in Isaiah 53 says this, But he, speaking of the Messiah, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And then listen to Zechariah. Now, Zechariah is one of the last prophets of your Old Testament. He's writing four or five hundred years before Jesus came. Right before that long period of silence, when God stopped speaking through his prophets in anticipation of John the Baptist coming as the forerunner of Christ. And listen to what Zechariah said. God speaking now says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that, and here it comes, when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. You need to know that the Jewish people could not accept a Messiah that died. Worst of which would be one who died on a cross. Cursed is anyone who dies on a tree, Galatians chapter 3. But after the resurrection, the Bible says in Acts chapter 6 verse 7, that the message of Christ was proclaimed and many priests, this is Jewish priests, many priests, Believed on his name. The plan of God has always included a cross. And God is very 
very involved in this whole process. Let's check it out. Verse 44, it says, It was now the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Let's talk about this darkness for a little bit. In the late 1900s, there was a movement, and it started in the country of Germany. Okay? has no real significance for us. Just a little bit of history here. And it was a movement towards... In theology circles, it was a movement towards naturalism. Now, what is naturalism? Naturalism is the idea that everything that we see can be explained through natural causes. This was the idea that anything that happens can be explained by the laws of physics, the laws of chemistry, the laws of of whatever science you choose to use. And this was very, very vogue in the late 1900s in theological circles. And so what theologians did in the the 1880s, 1890s, is they attacked the Word of God. There was an effort to attack the authority of God's Word. And this is how it looked. This is primarily how it looked. Creation. How in the world could we just exist from nothing? That is silly. There's no way that we could just come to be. There had to have been some natural function, some way for us to exist. And so within theological circles, this idea that everything could be explained through natural means took root, even in Christianity. Now, there were two areas that were attacked most. First, creation. already talked about that. And from that then came evolution. It's not a coincidence that the theological naturalist movement started shortly after Darwin's Origin of the Species. It's not by accident. So from that naturalist thinking came evolution. But then the second area that these theologians who denied miracles, who denied the Word of God, the second area that they had to attack would be what? You know, we're coming with some Easter. I'm a pastor. I'm talking. What must it be? The resurrection. The resurrection. There was an effort to attack the resurrection. And there were some theories that were sort of dreamed up. Okay? I'll tell you the two primary theories of the resurrection. Both of them, coincidentally, are the view of Muslims today. Okay? The first one is this, that Jesus didn't die on the cross. No, he swooned. That's the term that that is used. Okay? And this is the idea, that Jesus was there on the cross, and he was only there for a short number of hours anyway, and we all know that it takes days to die on the cross. And so Jesus was there on the cross, and he never actually died. He just swooned. In other words, he lost consciousness, The Roman soldiers came, looked at him, scratched his head, said, he must be dead. So they took him down off the cross. They threw him in the tomb. The cold room of the tomb allowed him to come back to to consciousness. He then walked out, and everybody saw him and said, he's resurrected. Swoon theory. Many of the Sunni Muslims hold to the swoon theory that Jesus didn't really die. 
He couldn't have died. If he died and came back to life, what does that mean? It means he's God. So the other view, if you don't go swoon theory, you have to go with this whole substitute theory. Now this one is even more outlandish. Here's how this one supposedly works. Judas, the betrayer of Jesus, right before the Roman soldiers grasped Jesus and arrested him, God did this miracle. And he allowed Judas to look like Jesus. And so rather than grab Jesus, they grabbed Judas. And Judas was crucified. And Jesus was not. What are you going to say when somebody says these things to you? I mean, what if they quote the Quran? Let me read you the Quran. What it says about this. I don't have this memorized. (laughs) We killed Messiah. This is quoting the Jews, by the way, in the Quran. We killed Messiah, son of Mary, the messenger of Allah, but they killed him not, nor crucified him. But the resemblance of Jesus was put over another man, and they killed that man. And those who differ therein are full of doubts. They have no certain knowledge. They follow nothing but conjecture. For surely they killed him not. Jesus, son of Mary, they killed not. Listen, if we take away the resurrection, Paul says we are to be pitied more than anybody else. Take away the resurrection, Christianity falls to the ground. But the thing we need to see today is that Jesus really died. And God was very involved. Let me get back to that, okay? Verse number 44. Let's start with, how how was God involved? Number one, He was involved in the darkness. In the darkness. There was darkness over the whole land. Oh, now I know I got on that rabbit trail. So where does darkness come from? Where did it come from? There are some that say, well, it was an eclipse. It had to be an eclipse. That's what it was. Naturalists would say, it's an eclipse. Well, the thing lasted three hours. And don't miss this detail. I checked with an astronomy friend of mine, an expert in astronomy, and made sure of this detail. But during the Passover, according to the calendar, there's a full moon. You may not know that, but I do now. And during a full moon, there can be no eclipse of the sun. What's going on here? I'll tell you what's going on. God is involved. God has now taken the reins of control. And God brings this great period of darkness, three hours of darkness, over the land. I don't know if this is over the whole world. I don't know if this is over Jerusalem. I don't know if this is over the cross. I don't know. But it says the entire land was covered with darkness. Now why is that? What does darkness represent? Now to us, darkness is scary. I ask you, are you afraid of the dark? And you might think, well, darkness, I guess that's Satan. No, it is not. Let me read to you, I don't have this memorized either. Let me read to you another passage of Scripture, okay? It's from Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. Listen to the word of the Lord. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. 
A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress, a day of anguish, a day of ruin, a day of devastation, a day of judgment, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. The Old Testament mentions darkness a few times. Abraham, Moses, here we have Zephaniah experiencing darkness, and every time, you know what darkness represents? It represents the judgment of God. Why did the Son fail? When the Son is on the cross, why did the Son, light, fail and darkness reign over the earth? The reason is this. God was judging sin seen on His Son. Do not miss that. Do not miss this detail. Judgment does not represent Satan is in control. It's not darkness because evil men are ruling the day. It is dark because God is bringing His full judgment of sin on to His Son. This is meant to be heavy in our hearts and heavy on our shoulders to consider that when Jesus at this point is on the cross, though He had never committed sin, He had experienced all temptation, every sin of mankind resided on Him. And God brought His judgment onto Him. That's why it is that Jesus prayed this prayer. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now you might hear that and think, well, it's significant that he said, why have you forsaken me? And it certainly is significant that Jesus said, why have you forsaken me? But let me share one other detail that might strike you. That's the only time we have recorded where Jesus prayed a prayer and started with, my God, my God. What is happening here? What is happening is Jesus Christ is what we call, the theological word for this, is the propitiation for sin. What that means is God's wrath is poured out completely on His Son. See, I like to make this personal. I let my mind's eye now run back over the last six, eight, twelve hours. Maybe somebody got to stretch out to twenty-four. I don't know. Get back to a sin when you gossiped, when you lusted, when you envied, when you lied, when there was murder in your heart. It was adultery in your heart. At that moment, somehow in the supernatural character of God, Jesus Christ took on that sin. It's heavy, isn't it? And darkness reigned over the earth because the judgment of God was in place. Now, I don't tell you that to guilt you. 
I'm not telling you this to make you feel small. I'm telling us this to glorify God and let us see Him as big. To see His love. To see His care. To see His sacrifice for us. That Jesus Christ took on sin and God brought down judgment. Let's go back to the passage. And at that moment, while the sun's light failed, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now that may not mean a whole lot to you, so let me try to explain this in a way that maybe we can grasp. There in Jerusalem is this large structure. It's called the temple. Within the temple, you have this place of worship. And in this place called the Holy of Holies, you've got the Ark of the Covenant that God had had demanded would be there. And the priest, the high priest, once a year the high priest would go behind this curtain. There were 13 curtains there. And this one curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from all the others was the most magnificent. It It had many different colors. We know from the writings of Josephus that it was covered with pictures of angels. It was the width of a man's hand, the curtain. That's the fabric now, okay? That's not the length of the curtain. It's the length of a man's hand. That's what, what, eight, ten inches thick this curtain was. Of threads weaved together with great care. And it hung there for a reason. It wasn't just a decoration. It wasn't ornamental. That's not what it was. It represented something. It represented that you and me, because none of us are the high priest, it represented that you and I have no real access to God. We could never come to God. Now we're told by tradition, we don't really know whether this is true or not, but we're told by tradition that when the high priest would go there, that they would tie a rope on him so that if he died, they could pull him out. Not sure if that's really true or not, but you get the idea what this curtain represented. It represented separation, folks. It represented an insufficient system called the law that would never bring someone closer to God, that would never save anybody or sanctify anybody. It represented the law. It represented the temple. It represented what we could never do. We could never work our way to God. And one of the wonderful miracles of the, at the cross, I'm telling you, God was so involved. He brought darkness over the land. And the Bible says in Mark that when light came, when the light returned at the ninth hour, There in the temple, I want you to picture what's going on now. It's Passover. It's Passover. That means there in front of that curtain, there are hundreds of priests and Levites with thousands of sheep. And they're slitting the throats of these things over and over and over. It's a bloody scene. And at noon, the whole land goes dark. And I imagine that probably... The killing stopped. What's going on? What's happening? It's dark. For three hours they wondered. The sheep bleeding. And then light returns. And the priests, being the diligent workers that they are, picked up their knife to slit the throat of another sheep. 
they hear a noise. An eight-inch curtain ripping, Mark says, from the top to the bottom. Wow. And the curtain drapes open. It's like Wizard of Oz in reverse. The curtain falls, and now we see the truth. What an act of God. And what does it represent? It represents access to God. There's no need for the law to follow the law to bring us to God, I mean to say. I should say it correctly. We can't follow the law to bring us to God. There's no separation. There's no need for a priest. There's no need for sheep and goats to display out their blood to, to cover sin. Listen to Hebrews. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, it's not dead, it's not old, the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain. There it is. That is, through His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Atonement was complete. Access is granted. We are now all priests. You know that? 1 Peter 2.9 says that you and I, we are of the priesthood of God. I don't need anybody to pray for me. I don't need anybody to escort me to God. You don't have to come to me and say, hey, I know you've got a special connection with God. Can you pray for me? I mean, I'll pray for you. But I'm no different than you. And you're no different than me. There is no priest except for Jesus. That's what the ripping in two of this torn represented. You see, God was very involved. And then finally, verse 46. And then Jesus called out with a loud voice. You know, every word of Scripture is inspired. Don't ever forget that. Every word is inspired. Why did the author tell us he cried out with a loud voice? You know what people do right before they die on a cross? Nothing. That's what they do. You die of physical exhaustion, then leading to cardiac arrest... You die from exhaustion. But Jesus cries out in a victorious shout. And what does he say? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now again, you've heard that so many times that it slips out of meaning. It's just so worn out, we forget it. Well, listen, it was worn out in that day. When Jesus said, into your hands I commit my spirit, he's quoting Psalm 31, you know that? It was the bedtime prayer of every Jewish boy and Jewish girl. You know, some of you, your parents put you to bed and they would say, now I lay me down to sleep, I pray my Lord. Remember that little prayer? That's what that was. That's what that was in that day. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Every single Jewish boy and Jewish girl were taught to pray that prayer as they lay their head down to sleep. But Jesus, 
in a loud voice of victory, took that familiar song and made it all so different. Do you see it? Do you see what's different? Jesus prayed in a way that was unheard of. You see, you and I do it all the time now. So it's no big deal to us. But in this day, it was unheard of, apart from Jesus, to pray to God, Father. Nobody prayed that way. Nobody called God Father. That would be blasphemy to call God Father. Oh, He was the Father of Israel, but He's not the Father of me. But think about Jesus, what this represents What this represents is now fellowship is now restored for Jesus and God. God the Father and God the Son. For that three hours, God the Father is bringing His judgment on the Son. But now the light is back on and the temple curtain is torn in two and Jesus now looks to the Father and says, Father, Abba, is what He says. Abba, Father. Intimate connection. Judgment is done. Condemnation over. Penalty paid. Into thy hands I commit my spirit. Cried out, it is finished. John 19. And breathed his last and died. And now we wait. Jesus really died. God truly judged the sin of mankind and poured His wrath on His Son. Skip forward to my last slide there for me. One more. I ask you this question. Yeah. If this God is for us, this is Romans. This is Romans 8. If God is for us, if the God who took the cross and took the sin, if the God who will judge His Son for our sin, if He is for us, the rhetorical question is asked, who can be against us? The answer is no one. Do you know your love today? Do you know your love You are loved with an everlasting love. A love that does not fade. A love that is more precious than gold or silver. It's the forgiving love of the Father. Sent His Son and lavished us with much love. Ephesians 2 says, much love He loved us with. You are loved today by the Father. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank You for going to the cross. And Father God, I thank You for being our Father. For Your plan of redemption established in the beginning, fulfilled through Your Christ, Jesus given to us by grace through faith. As Billy said, 
Your goodness to us is beyond our ability to grasp, Lord. But we thank You for it today. We worship You now. God, we want to worship You in spirit and in truth. We want to sing praises to Your name because You alone are worthy. Amen.